Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, December 26th, 2020. Right now it is Wednesday morning, December 23rd. And once again, we have our friend Truthvids here with us to continue our discussion of his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 20 of our series already. It's, it's just flown by. Good morning, Truthwits. Hello, Bill. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, we're finally on to the, the main part I was really looking forward to in all these major mistranslations. Uh, you know, Satan, the devil, the Nephilim, the giants. And hopefully um, this should really clear up that um, it's not necessarily just this boogeyman running the world, but that there are actually descendants of these fallen angels that are the adversary to us and to Yahweh our God. And that if, if it was explained properly from beginning to end, that there's a continuation of these Nephilim into these uh, races that we find around the lands of Canaan to the modern Jews and Arabs and all the non-whites today, then it would be so much clearer. So, so hopefully we can explain that. And essentially, if you understand who the enemy or adversary is, it should be, you know, perhaps a, a, in a silly way, explain if you understand who the bad guys are, then you know who the good guys are, that us, the, the white people. And that should make it clear that we are the Israelites of the Bible. Right, Bill? And absolutely. People, people tend too easily to perceive the ancient world as if it, it, in ancient times it looked like the modern world. And that's simply not true that the Arabs were actually in India, that they were trading slaves in Southeast Asia as early as 700 BC. Most of that stretch of, of, of the continent along Southeast Asia and, and Malaysia and Indonesia had Arab blood in it as early as 700 BC. And, and they were trading Negroes into China as slaves as early as 700 BC that they were, most of that world was already brought to Islam and subjected to Islam by the time that English and, and Spanish merchants and explorers even got to that part of the Pacific, Pacific Ocean, that part of the Orient. So it, it's the same thing with South America and the Caribbean, but with the Arabs and, and Jews among the conquistadors, and, and these resettlements of Arab people into South America and, and the Gulf of Mexico at an early time in, in the 1400s, 1300s, 1400s, 1500s. The world today is a result of the ancient world. And, and these Arabs were every bit as busy colonizing the world as Europeans were. And, and in fact, the Arabs had a head start in a lot of places. And they were right there with the Spanish, and they were right there with the Portuguese. Jews had come to the, to, to the Americas in large numbers in early times because they were fleeing the Spanish Inquisition. Jews created modern Mexico by interbreeding with 
with with the natives that they found there. It, it's this has been going on for centuries, and it's demonstrable that it's been going on for many centuries more than people perceive today. This this colonization of lands in other places. So. In order to understand the modern world and, and to truly understand it, you must understand antiquity. And if you don't understand antiquity properly, if you don't understand the Mesopotamian literature and, and the Hebrew scriptures properly, you'll never understand the modern world. And, and that's why most people don't. And, and that's why most people are confused, even as to what are people, they're confused. So... We take these savages out of the jungle and we put our clothing on them and teach them our language and we expect them to be people. And, and the society goes into a spiraling decay and we wonder why society is decaying rather than advancing. Look at Paris today compared to Paris 100 years ago or London and, and you can see the corruption and the decay. And, and we being the egalitarians that we are, we, we remain in denial, but it's happening. And, and our Christian civilization is collapsing because we've taken beasts out of jungles and tried to make people out of them. And it's still going on. Okay, that's a rant, but that's the, that, that's the beginning. And, and that's to, to understand what we're about to say here, what Satan is, what a devil is, what, what a demon is, it, it's all part of that. That if we had these proper concepts of, of the way these words are used in scripture, if we had these concepts, if we understood them properly, let's put it that way, that, then we wouldn't have these problems that we're having today. And, and we would still have a white Christian society instead of a corrupted multicultural society, it, if multicultural is even a proper term. It, it's not multicultural because these other races never had any true culture to begin with. Okay, this is our fifth discussion of this point 42 in, in your 100 proofs that the Israelites were, were white. And, and were white. And, and once again, and, and we've already explained this probably four times, this review of the meanings of certain words does not explicitly prove the race of the Israelites, but understanding the true meanings of many biblical terms does help to prove that word meanings were obfuscated by the churches so as to distort the many other evidences that the message of Christ and his apostles and prophets is solely intended for white Europeans. I don't know if you have anything to say before we continue this discussion with the devil and Satan. Yeah, that essentially it's a collective that um, we don't necessarily know, you know, exactly where the fallen angels are now, but we certainly do know where their descendants are, right? They're, they're all around us now. And um, collectively, all together, they are the Satan, the devil the adversary to us and, and to Yahweh, his creation, the Adamic race, and, and now the, the Israelites, who mostly all that remain of the Adamic race. Well, well right. And, and that there's some of the misconceptions of Scripture 
are very old, and, and this is representative of one of those misconceptions, is the idea that the fallen angels are bound in a pit in chains. Jude and Peter both say that the angels who left their first estate, the angels that sinned, are bound in chains of darkness. And that's exactly how it's put, that they're bound in chains of darkness. And for centuries, medieval interpreters understood, and, and it's still interpreted that way today in the denominational churches, that they believe that these fallen angels are out in a desert somewhere in a pit bound in chains. But that's not what the, the apostles were telling us. They were telling us that these fallen angels, if you read Jude, they are spots in our feast of charity. If you read Peter, they are evil beasts made to be taken and destroyed. Well, if we look at the creation of God, nothing was made to be taken and destroyed. Everything he created was good. If you actually examine the words of Peter and Jude, you'll see that these angels chained in darkness are among us, and that's how they are spots in our feasts of charity. They are people who are among us. And it's not that they're bound in darkness in chains. They're bound in chains of darkness. <laughs> That's a, an allegory. It's a metaphor. It's not to be taken literally. They are people among us who can never come to the light of the truth. And, and they've infiltrated among us, which is how both of those apostles describe them in, in 2 Peter chapter 2 or in the epistle of Jude. That they are outsiders who have infiltrated among the body of Christ. They have infiltrated among, they infiltrated into the body of the children of Israel in ancient times. And that's how the apostles are explaining this. They are basically Edomites and, and Canaanites and Kenites who somehow got their way into the congregation of, of Israel by claiming to convert or, or by surreptitiously into marrying, or however they did it, it, it's very clear in history that they have done it time and time again. And this is the story of the Old Testament, and it's the story in that, that the New Testament presents. So, that being said, we should probably discuss Satan and the devil and, and these terms. The word Satan is a common Hebrew word which was used in the New Testament in a particular manner. And therefore, in order to properly understand what it means, we must examine its use and meaning in the Old Testament Hebrew. In many passages, it is clear that a Satan is only an opponent or an adversary. And in many different contexts, the word was applied to men. For example, David was called a Satan or adversary to the Philistines, meaning that the Philistines would look on David as an adversary, a Satan, 
being the Hebrew word there, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 29, verse 4. And Hadad the Edomite was called a Satan or adversary to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 14. Later in that same chapter, in verse 25, Rezan, the son of Eliadah, was also a Satan or adversary to Israel in the days of Solomon. From the perspective of men, even an angel of God was an adversary or Satan, being the Hebrew word, to Balaam in Numbers chapter 22. So, is that angel of God a Satan from our perspective? Certainly not. But from Balaam's perspective, that angel of God was an adversary to him. So that word Satan is used in reference to that angel opposing Balaam. In the same context later in the chapter, the same word, Hebrew word Satan, in Numbers chapter 22, verse 32, is translated, is a verb translated as withstand. To withstand someone is to be a Satan to them, to their perspective. But not all opponents, not all adversaries are also capital S, Satans. Even while there are capital S, Satans, Satans, adversaries that deserve that capital S because they are <clears throat> particular adversaries. Grammatically, one different from a biblical perspective. Grammatically, one difference between Satan with a capital S denoting a particular Satan with a capital S for which we for which reason we prefer to translate it as Satan in that manner. There's a difference between that type of Satan and an adversary who may be just about anyone at one point in time or another. Now, that difference, that grammatical difference is in what is called a substantive. In, in other words, you and I are, are good friends and, and we've been working together a long time. And if we played a game of chess together, during that game of chess, in the context within the game of chess, you would be my adversary, right? But yep. that, doesn't, that doesn't make you a capital S Satan because we're good friends and work together in every other aspect of life. So when this word Satan shows up, we have to see the context that it's in and, and the subject it's speaking of. A substantive is a word or group of words which are not typically nouns, but are sometimes employed as nouns or, or are being employed as nouns in a particular context. In Hebrew or Greek, substantives are quite common. Combined with a definite article, the noun is used to represent a particular entity and not just any one of an entity which fits the description in the definition of the noun. In language, when the definite article accompanies a noun or a substantive, it indicates that the subject referred to by the noun has already been mentioned or is common knowledge 
or is about to be defined. In, in other words, I, I could use the term run as a verb. And when we use the term runner, which is actually a word describing somebody that runs, when we use the term runner, now it's a noun. But when, when I'm referring to a particular event, and I say the runners, now it's almost a proper noun because I'm referring to a particular group of people who are running at a particular time in a particular event. So in that context, the runners, it, it, it's a substantive and, and with a definite article. So it refers to particular people who are running and not to just anybody who might be running at that time. I mean, somebody else somewhere else in the world might be running and I'm not referring to them. So that, that's the way language works. It's all about context. So a man, saying a man, may refer to any man, but the man, the man, is a particular man, and his identity is determined by the context in which references to him appear. For example, in Genesis chapter 1, where the Hebrew reads Adam, it is usually translated as man. But where it says, Eth ha Adam, in Genesis chapter 2, it is properly the name of a particular man, which is Adam with the capital A. The phrase Eth ha Adam is a substantive, a group of words which of which none may be nouns by themselves, but which are used as a noun, and often, as in the case of eth ha adam, a proper noun. In this example, the word Adam by itself is a noun, but eth ha adam is a proper noun referring to a particular Adam. So a substantive can be treated in the same way. If it just says Satan, well, that could be a verb, a noun, or an adjective. So looking at the context, if it's determined that where it just says Satan, it's a noun, it could be any particular adversary. It doesn't have to be a certain adversary. But where it has the article and it says the Satan, then we must examine the context because it's referring to a particular entity that is an adversary and not just to any possible adversary. So that, that's important to distinguish in language. In the scriptures, very often the distinction is lost because of the way that they're translated. In scripture, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, or in Mark chapter 8, verse 33, we see that Yahshua Christ referred to Peter as, quote-unquote, Satan, as the King James Version has a capital S. But there is no definite article in the text which accompanies the word for Satan in those verses. Christ had told Peter something which was going to happen to himself and had attested that it was the will of God. Yet Peter expressed opposition to that. So Christ called him an adversary for that reason. But that does not make Peter himself a capital S Satan, 
and the failure of the traditional translations to distinguish this use of the term Satan is the cause of much confusion. There is a particular Satan in the scriptures which does merit the capital S, but that Satan is not necessarily a ghost or a supernatural spirit or a power in heaven which is competing with the power of God. There are few Old Testament references to Satan by that name, although there certainly are, or I'm sorry, there certainly is a satanic entity in the Old Testament, a satanic capital S entity. But in order to understand what that entity really is, we must first locate it in the New Testament, and there's reasons for that. And in the New Testament, it is revealed by Christ. I don't know if you have anything to add before we move on to that revelation. Yeah, yeah, it's um, in in the Old Testament. It's not necessarily all, all clear, but but Christ He reveals it, and that's the way Yahweh wanted it to be, right? That it would be revealed to us, the children of Israel, only, like like the full true understanding. Absolutely, and that's exactly the purpose of the, of the words of Christ, as the gospel states, and and we'll get onto that momentarily. But this word Satan, it, it's in in First Chronicles chapter twenty one is the first place it appears in Scripture, and Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Well, that's a capital S in the English, but it shouldn't be a capital S. It shouldn't be a capital S because it, it, it is not accompanied with a definite article. It should be, and a Satan stood up against Israel, an adversary, an adversary that's not defined by the context. So it shouldn't be a capital S, Satan. In Job, and Satan came also among them. And, and this entity several times in Job chapter 1, chapter 2 is described as Satan. This Satan is accompanied by a definite article. So it's referring to a particular individual who is acting as an adversary to Job and, and to God in in. in also, if you examine the context, does that make this a supernatural being? No, it does not. Because Satan himself in Job says that he's walking to and fro in the earth and appears with all of the men of Israel at the tabernacle where the men of Israel are commanded to assemble three times a year. And that's the setting of Job chapters one and two. So this Satan, even though this Satan is obviously some sort of sorcerer or, or something and has um, extraordinary abilities. We see those extraordinary abilities in other men, such as the magicians in, in the court of Pharaoh in Egypt. So this Satan is a particular individual. And for that reason, it's fair to capitalize the S in the translations in Job chapters one and two. However, that doesn't necessarily make this Satan a supernatural entity. 
even though it's a so it was some Edomite bastard who had who was sneaking around amongst the Judeans, right? Or, or well, Israelites, rather. Well, well, that would be the proper way to interpret that. It would be some Edomite or Canaanite or one of the one of the Nephilim, one of the fallen ones, and and we're going to get into that later when when we discuss those terms here this evening as well. It could be any one of those individuals. It doesn't necessarily have to be a supernatural entity. And and we see there are only two other books which reference Satan in that manner, where it's a capital S in the King James Version. And that's in Psalm 109. And that there's um it's a comparison, it's a Psalm of David comparing the, the righteous and, and the wicked. Set thou a wicked man over him, <clears throat> and let Satan stand at his right hand. And, and that's just referring to an adversary. That should not be a capital S, Satan. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned, and let his prayer become sin. David speaking about the actions, intentions, the thoughts of the hearts of, of the wicked, where we see... In the Hebrew text, that word translated as Satan, it's not accompanied with a definite article. It's not a a a a um, particular Satan or adversary. It's just any adversary. Set now a wicked man over him, and let an adversary stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned, and let his prayer be sin. Why? Because a wicked man. Wicked things come out of his heart, and, and his evil is going to be exposed in judgment, which is basically what David is saying. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. So that's the context. It's any adversary, not a particular one. <clears throat> in Zechariah chapter 3, which is actually prophetic of Christ and his ministry, but it's describing the time of Joshua the high priest and the opposition that he had at the rebuilding of the temple, at the building of the second temple in 520 BC, while it's at the same time a type for Christ. And Joshua is depicted as Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And there is no definite article again. So it's not Satan that the supreme evil spirit, as pictured by the denominational churches, it's just an adversary. And when we look at who the adversaries to Joshua were, when the second temple was being built, the adversaries were Samaritans and, and Moabites and, and other men who tried to prevent that temple from being built built, and that's described in the book of Ezra. They are the adversaries that stood against Joshua the high priest. And Joshua Christ himself, of which this Zechariah chapter 3 is a type, Joshua Christ himself, his adversaries in the temple that constantly disputed with him and who ultimately crucified him, they were also simply men. Yeah, yeah. Was there a fallen angel uh, constantly following Christ and persecuting him? No, it was these Edomite bastards, right? Right. 
They were his, they were described as his opponents, his adversaries, the people disputing with him, his enemies. So this whole concept of the way Satan is looked at is wrong, and it's based on that these capital S Satans in the Old Testament, who are not necessarily capital S Satans, they're just adversaries. They're human adversaries in most cases. Now, sometimes the translators understood that, and, and they did translate the word accordingly as adversary or opponent or, or enemy or whatever. But quite often they put a capital S Satan where there shouldn't be one. And that's the case in Zechariah. That's the case in Psalm 109. That's the case in, in um, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And that's the case with Peter in, in Matthew 12 and Mark 8 or Matthew 16 and Mark 8. So if we understood how the word is used and what it's referring to, we, we would have a better understanding of Scripture and not be looking at this Satan as a boogeyman in heaven because Satan is all around us. So to understand this, the, the start of this endeavor is found in Matthew chapter 13, where there is a profession that Christ had come to reveal things which had been kept secret from the foundation of the world. So these things which he is about to reveal would not be found in the Old Testament or they would not have been kept secret then immediately after we see that profession, Christ is asked by his disciples to explain the parable of the tares of the field. So why did Matthew write that he came to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world in between the giving of the parable of the tares of the field and the explanation of the parable of the tares of the field? And the subsequent explanation is not a parable in itself, or Christ would not have been doing what his disciples had asked, which was to explain the parable. So the things that he explains are things which have been kept secret <clears throat> from the foundation of the world. <clears throat> so we read in Matthew chapter 13 from verse 37, he answered and said unto them, he that soweth the good seed is the son of man. And, and I'm going to look up that word soweth real quick because I, I really didn't see the form of it. I, I thought it was. It's present tense. He's sowing the good seed is the son of man. It's a present tense participle, which I thought it was, but I wanted to double check that real quick. So he that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one, the enemy that sowed them. Now that occurrence of sowing, of, of the verb, is past tense. It, it's, it, it's not a present tense. It's an aorist verb which refers to an action that had already started in the past. The tares were already sown. 
The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. The denominational Christians generally insist that the sowing is the gospel, but that is not what Christ had said here. <clears throat> when he spoke these words, the announcement of the gospel had not yet been presented to the world. The gospel had not yet been announced to the world. Speaking of the seed, he used the present tense of both the good and the bad, so they already existed. Then speaking of the tares, he said, the enemy that sowed them is the devil. And we see a past tense verb. So they were already sown among the wheat. He's not describing people with bad beliefs. Rather, he is describing good and bad races of people. The next passage to reference in order to prove this is found in Revelation chapter 12. There we read in part from verse 7, And it was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives, and, and that's present tense, the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Past tense. His angels were cast out with him. Not will be cast out with him, but were cast out with him. And, and, and that... um word for deceive. It's a present tense particle. It's more properly he deceiving the whole world. In the present tense, when the revelation was given in 70 AD, this dragon was already cast out, past tense, and was deceiving the whole world, present tense. And his angels were cast out, past tense, with him. And because the revelation is a multifaceted prophecy, there are several aspects of this passage to discuss. First, the great dragon, devil, and Satan, described here, is equated with that old serpent, which must be a reference to Genesis chapter 3. So this, in turn, must be describing something which happened even before the events which are described in Genesis chapter 3. And it explains the presence of a rational, cognitive serpent in the account of the creation of Adam in the Garden of God. But that's not explained until Revelation chapter 12, because... Christ came to reveal things kept secret 
since the foundation of the world. Then, and, and, and there's a contention, and I've been hit with this argument before, and, and it's a facetious argument. There's a contention with Judeo-Christians that the revelation only reveals things in the future. And that's not true. And, and this very chapter proves it's not true. Because the individual who sought to kill the Christ child is also described here. And the catching of the Christ child up to heaven is also described here. And that individual can only describe Herod the Great. So right away we see that something from the past, from perhaps 2 AD or 2 BC, I'm sorry, and, and when Herod tried to destroy the... the um, the, the children of Bethlehem in order to destroy the Christ child is being described here. That's in the past from when the revelation was given. So I don't want to hear the argument that the revelation only describes things in the future. That's not true. A lot of the things described in the revelation had already happened in the past. And if the revelation only described things in the future, then it would never speak in a past tense as it spoke of the fall of the angels here. So, the individual who sought to kill the Christ child is also described here, and that can only describe Herod the Great. However, Herod was an Edomite, and understanding the nature of the Edomites, we can see how Herod is representative of this entity, because the Edomites were part Canaanite, the Canaanites were part Rephaim and part Kenite. And, and they were all mingled together. And the Rephaim are from the Nephilim, or the fallen ones. And the fallen ones is the Genesis description for these same fallen angels. And we'll get to that as we progress this evening. So this is all like a circle of understanding. If you don't understand the beginning of the book or the end of the book, you can't understand the beginning. And if you don't properly interpret the beginning, you can't understand the end. And it's a circle of interlocking pieces. And those pieces interlock perfectly once you understand the end and the beginning. But you have to understand them both. And to understand the end and the beginning, you have to understand the gospel of Christ in the same context as the end and the beginning. It's all a big puzzle of interlocking pieces. And, and once you interlock the pieces properly, you have a great revelation. I, I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but I'm trying to give you an opportunity. Yeah, yeah it, um, um, because the Satan, the devil, is deceiving all the world. That's why Christ has to also reveal the past, right? Because it's been obscured by these devils. They are hiding it. They're, they're hiding their origin, that where, where they come from, obviously, to protect themselves. And he's revealing it to us. Absolutely. And, and there in Revelation chapter 12, the same Satan is referred to as the accuser of our brethren. And that is also the role which an individual called devil and Satan played in the book of Job. It's a perfect portrayal of the way that the devil and Satan, these satanic entities, 
treat the, the children of, of, of Israel or, or white Christians today, constantly accusing them. Oh, you're a racist. Uh, oh, you're, you're, you're um, what, whatever. That they're constantly accusing Christian. You're racist. You're a Nazi. You're, you're, if you didn't have that nice house, you would curse God. It, if Let me get you in some debt so that I could take your house away, right? I, I mean, it's constant. That they're constantly picking and, and parasiting and, and picking at Christian society and, and feeding off it like piranhas. Yeah, yeah. All you have to do is go set up a white cherry and they will come out the woodwork and persecute you. Just just do anything for your people and they will appear and uh, accuse you, right? Force accuse you. Absolutely. And, and it's the same thing that happened to Job. And that's why that's there as an example to us of the nature of the, the devil and Satan, who are really people that they're an entity that, that are in the world as a race of people from those fallen angels. And, and that hopefully will become more clear as we proceed this evening. It, it's that this Satan is referred to as the accuser of our brethren, and that is the role which an individual called devil and Satan played in the book of Job and in the second temple, as I've illustrated at the time of Zechariah, and among the rulers of Judea during the ministry of Christ. They were constantly accusing Christ of evil when, in truth, he had done nothing wrong. Then we see in Revelation chapter 12 that after failing to destroy the Christ child, the dragon, the dragon who was also the devil and Satan and that old serpent, the dragon would go on to make war with the remnant of the seed of the woman. The woman, having 12 stars, represents both the Eve of Genesis and the children of Israel as the bride of Yahweh, the 12 stars being the 12 tribes of Israel. The words dragon, devil, and serpent are used throughout the end of the chapter, Revelation chapter 12, to describe this entity, which is which is a collective entity and therefore represents a race of people. They are also the tares of the field in the parable of Matthew chapter 13. They were sown by the devil. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul of Tarsus describes a Satan sitting in the temple of God, pretending to be God. And he uses verbs of the present tense on every occasion in that description, meaning that, that the actions that the Satan is guilty of are occurring as Paul is writing. And, and the second epistle to the Thessalonians was written while Paul was in Corinth. Both of the epistles of the Thessalonians were written. They are chronologically the earliest epistles which we have from Paul. They were written around 51 AD, I believe Paul was in Corinth, 50, 51 AD. In Romans chapter 16, Paul told his readers that Yahweh would crush Satan under their feet shortly. 
Now, Romans was one of Paul's later epistles. It was the last epistle that he wrote as a free man before he went to Judea and was put in bonds. And Romans was written around 57 AD. And Paul told the Romans that Yahweh would crush Satan under their feet shortly. It's the same Satan he's talking about in the present tense in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And 13 years after Paul wrote those words, the Romans destroyed that temple in Jerusalem to which Paul had described to the Thessalonians. In 1 Peter chapter 5, the apostle warned, and 1 Peter was probably written in the mid-60s A.D., after 62 A.D. I believe it was written after Paul was what was executed in Rome. In 1 Peter chapter 5, the apostle warned, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Just like in Job, the devil is a man walking about in society seeking whom he may devour. Then in 1 John chapter 4, he also warned, Beloved, or, or in 1 John chapter 4, that apostle also warned, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. How does Jude describe false prophets? And how do does Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 describe false prophets as men who have crept in unawares into the body of Christ? John is not talking about disembodied spirits. John is talking about embodied spirits. So Peter's devils walk about like lions in pursuit of men, and the spirits of John's warning are also false prophets who are out in the world. In John chapter 6, Christ told his disciples, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? The Apostle John then explains that he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. So we see that Judas, being a man, was also a devil, in spite of the fact that Christ had no accusation that Judas had actually done anything wrong. Even that act described as betrayal was not against the law. It wasn't wrong by itself. It was wrong that Judas did that to his friend, but it wasn't wrong against the law. Similarly, one word which is translated as devil, the word diabolus, is accuser. And by implication, it means a false accuser. Somebody just casting up accusations, because bolus is actually a ball, right? Bolus comes from the word ballo, which is to throw, and dia means through, so it means through throwing, through throwing, through throwing accusations at someone, hoping that something sticks. That's what a false accuser does. That's why they use that word diabolus to describe it.
so by implication, even though it's just accuser, it means a false accuser. That's the way it's translated in the Christianian New Testament as false accuser. <clears throat> in Revelation chapter 12, the satanic entity is described as the accuser of our brethren, and that actually uses a different Greek word, the verb categorio, which is to accuse. And then in that same place, Diabolos is translated as devil with a capital D. And this is because the word Diabolos, which is basically an adjective, when used as a substantive and accompanied with a definite article, it becomes a noun and a proper noun, which refers to a particular accuser which is therein defined as that old serpent, the great dragon, Satan, and as a leader of a rebellion against God, which must have taken place before the creation of Adam. And that explains how that old serpent is in the garden when Adam is created. These things being kept secret from the foundation of the world. They were not made known to men until the gospel and the revelation of Yahshua Christ. So, going back to Genesis, with this knowledge, going back to Genesis, in Genesis chapters 3 and 6, we see race-mixing events for which men were punished. And these events also describe the sowing of the tares in the field. Therefore, the tares are from the children of Cain and from the Nephilim of those same chapters. This is further proven in John chapter 8, where Christ had told his adversaries, <clears throat> his opponents, that ye are of your father the devil and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. So, who was a murderer from the beginning? Only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. And being a devil, he spawned a race of devils. That in turn leads to a discussion of these Nephilim and giants that we see in Genesis chapter 6. I don't know if you have anything to add to that concerning yeah. Satan. Yeah, when I first came to uh, Christian identity, this caused me a lot of confusion because <laughs> Nephilim is uh, translated as giants. So, so you imagine when a fallen angel mates with um, wh whatever it mates with, it must spawn a giant because it doesn't. It's not translated as fallen one. So, so you start to get confused and think, well, why wasn't Cain a giant? If if it says that they produce giants, shouldn't Cain have been a giant? And that adds just another layer of confusion. But if you understand, it just says fallen one. And uh, amongst all these fallen ones, you know, when you mix genetics and you mix species, you're going to get a lot of anomalies, which means there could be giants amongst these Nephilim or from the Nephilim, as well as dwarves, as well as, um, you know, anomalies. Like if you look at those... Um, Indian bastards, some of them are born with tails, some have horns, some have lizard skins. You get all these weird monstrosities that, that appear. And, and amongst that was also giganticism, which is still with us today. 
so, so that makes it a lot more clear and you realize uh, in the days of Noah it was basically what we have now just loads of non-white bastards all around us and our race the Adamites mixing with them and that's exactly what's happening now it's not um, you know that in the days of Noah there'll be giants everywhere rather there'll be non-Adamites everywhere and, and that's that makes it so much clearer right well, well, right. It, it it is absolutely clear once once you understand the meanings of these certain simple terms, and they're relatively simple terms. That there's Satan as an adversary, and then there's the Satan who, who's a particular adversary, and and men can be adversaries to each other very frequently in diverse aspects of life. For instance, if we run a race together, that then during the t course of that race, you're my adversary because I'm trying to beat you in that race. That that's but that doesn't make you my adversary in life in general. There, we can all be as Peter was adversaries to God at any given time when we do things or say things that are contrary to the word or the will of God. Sinning makes you an adversary to God because you're doing something that's contrary to his law. But there is a, a greater adversary here on earth, a greater adversary who will always be an enemy of God no matter what he does because he, he, he's corrupted and, and wasn't created by God. Yes, the original fallen angels were created by God, but the original fallen angels corrupted the creation of God. And Genesis chapter 6 is an example of that corruption. It's not the only corruption, and we have to turn to the apocryphal books to see other aspects of that corruption. But what happened with Adam? And the experience of Adam is also reflective of the corruption of the fallen angels. Because Adam was taken by God after he was created, and he was introduced to every beast. And among the beasts, a suitable mate was not found. That's a demonstration to us of what the fallen angels did to rebel from God. If you go to the Enoch literature, you'll learn that the fallen angels began miscegenating the creation of God by intermixing species of animals. So the first example when Adam is created is to see all the animals and not to find a suitable mate. And then Yahweh God creates a wife for him of his own flesh and bone. And Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And, and all of that's a poetic allegory representing the fact that the only suitable wife or mate that you should have is one who is, who is of your own race, of your own flesh and bone. So Eve ate from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and 
Adam joined her and they fell from the grace of God. So that's the first sin by which men were punished because they failed because they, there was only one law given to them at that time and that was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we know the nature of that law when we go to Genesis chapter 6 and we see that the whole race of Adam was punished even more severely for race mixing. That's how Cain was not the son of Adam because they were punished for the same sin. They had to be punished for the same sin because only one law was given that the men, the descendants of Adam in Genesis chapter 6 were punished for. And in Genesis chapter 6, in a different allegory, that sin is described a lot more precisely as these sons of God. And, and, and that term is also confused because in um, ancient manuscripts, it's sons of heaven. And the manuscripts, the ancient manuscripts are divided, but even the Alexandrian version of the Septuagint has angels instead of sons of God. Adam is the son of God. So these Nephilim, these sons of God in Genesis 6 are described as Nephilim. And the word Nephilim is seen in Genesis chapter 6 as giants. That's the way the King James translators understood it. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in under the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Now, in ancient times... These Nephilim were considered to be giants. That is true. It's even in the Greek of the wisdom of Solomon. But that doesn't mean that they were all of giant stature. <clears throat> because even the word giant doesn't necessarily have to refer to stature. They weren't all of a giant stature but they were mighty men and men of renown in ancient times. And in Genesis chapter 6, where it says there were giants in the earth in those days, they were already in the earth. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> I'm sorry, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, now that's describing a race-mixing episode that the daughters of men, the word men there is Adam. <clears throat> and the word men there being Adam, these Nephilim are race-mixing with the daughters of Adam. And they bear children to them. If there was no problem with that, if that wasn't race-mixing, then why punish the men for it? Yet, that entire generation was destroyed in the flood of Noah for this act, not for any other act, but this one, that they were accepting these children, these bastard children from this race-mixing episode. And once we understand that that word Nephilim doesn't really mean giants, it means fallen ones, as it is derived from a verb of similar meaning, and as Jesenius admitted, that the oldest Hebrew interpreters 
understood the word to have that meaning, but it was changed somehow in the Middle Ages. We can comprehend the fact that the fallen ones of Genesis chapter 6 are indeed the rebellious angels of Revelation chapter 12. That word Nephilim is a plural form of Nephil. The definition of the noun Nephil in Strong's number 5303 cannot be disconnected in meaning to the verb which is of the exact same Hebrew spelling, nafal, at Strong's number 5307. In other words, the verb nafal means to fall. So the noun which comes from that verb can't be separated from that meaning to fall. Nephilim means fallen ones. The fallen is what it's saying. The Nephilim are the fallen. Now, while many of them were apparently great of, stress, great of stature, words describing the Rephaim and the Anakim are sometimes translated as giants, but those names are actually only family names from certain of the Nephilim, or fallen ones. And we see that in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, and Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 11, for examples. So in Numbers 13, 33, we see, and there we saw the giants, and that word is Nephilim, and there we saw the fallen ones, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, again, the word is Nephilim. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. So these sons of Anak were great of stature, but the word translated as giants is Nephilim, and it means fallen ones. Just because at least many of the fallen ones were great of stature, that doesn't mean that Nephilim means that Nephilim means giants when it actually refers to the fallen, who happened, many of them at least, happened to be giants. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 10, the Emims dwelt therein in times past, a people great and many and tall, as the Anakims, which also were accounted giants, and there the word for giants is Rephaim, which also were accounted giants or Rephaim, as the Anakims, but the Moabites called them Emims. In ancient inscriptions, we find that these Nephilim, these giants, these half-men from heaven, as they were described, lived throughout Mesopotamia as well as in Palestine. And kings such as Gilgamesh practiced the so-called rite of the first night which was a supposed legal right later in, in history, in, in medieval Europe, where nobles or feudal lords asserted the authority to have sexual relations with subordinate women, in particular on their wedding nights. So, that these, um, these Nephilim, Gilgamesh is described, as having this right of the first night, meaning that it was his right as the king of Erech 
to deflower women or virgins that were being married, that he had them, he got to have them before their husbands had them. That was a, a custom which was enforced by these Nephilim in ancient Mesopotamia. And it's mentioned explicitly in the Epic of Gilgamesh. So they were spreading their seed far and wide, and that's my point of bringing that up. They were multiplying beyond the mere act of marriage or the proper marriage as we perceive it. Bill, do you think that could have existed before the flood as well, that they were uh, tyrannizing the Adamites as well, eventually? Well, well I'm sure because I, I really believe in, in Genesis, right? When Enos is born, the, the son of Seth, it says, then began men, because Adam had other sons and daughters, and Seth had other sons and daughters. When Enos is born, it says, then began men to call upon the name of Yahweh. Why would they be doing that in Genesis chapter 4? My theory is that they were doing that in Genesis chapter 4 when Enos was born, because that's when the giants started harassing, or the Nephilim started harassing the children of men and taking their daughters, which is seen in Genesis chapter 6. Yes, I, I do believe that, that there were already problems in the time of Enos, and that's why men began to call on, on the name of the Lord to get out of those troubles that they were having. I, I believe that's when the trouble began, is with the time of Enos, and, and probably continued until the earth was so corrupt by the time of Noah that, that they Yahweh God just decided to wipe out the whole race except for Noah. So that's my opinion. I can't prove that, but that's what I, I, I come to deduce by reading the scriptures, right? In any event, by the time of Noah, the race of Adam was so corrupted that Yahweh God decided to destroy them all and start from scratch. That's not because God got mad. That I mean, he must have foreseen all of this, that it was going to happen. So that stands as an example to us. The same thing is about to happen again because Christ said that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. And what do we see today? We see all of this race mixing going on that is unprecedented in recorded history. Race mixing like this never went on in recorded history in times of peace. It was only in times of war and conquest that you saw such race mixing go on. The, the Muslim conquests of, of Mesopotamia and, and the Arabs would rape all the women and, and the little boys and the goats and whatever else they could get their greasy hands on. They would rape them all and, and confuse all the seed and, and bastardize an entire, entire nations and, and races of people. That's what happened during the Islamic conquests and, and the Islam being the religion of peace you can't be a racist. Racism is unlawful in Islam because it's, an it's a religion of peace. You can rape babies, but you can't 
be a racist. That's the perfect religion for Jews to impose upon Gentiles. That's the truth of Islam. So that's another digression, right? This Agabashan and, and Goliath and his brothers, they were also Nephilim. And other such Nephilim appear throughout Scripture. And through such corrupted practices, they certainly must have been able to sow many tares among the wheat among the pagan nations. In Genesis chapter 15, we see that they were mingled with Canaanites, Kenites, and other tribes which had not originated with Adam or Noah. So they weren't Adamic people. And they were all mixing it up. And that's the cesspool, the genealogical cesspool from which came the Edomites and, and the Shelahites, who were part of the tribe of Judah. And, and that's the reason for the evil in ancient Israel. When Saul wanted to destroy all the, the priests of Yahweh, Doug the Edomite stepped right up to do it. And, and that's how they've acted in our society time and time and time again. But returning to the subject of Satan and the devil, we must also understand that there are different words translated as devil in both Greek and Hebrew. And, and these words had drastically different meanings, and they also cause much confusion. That is because there are embodied devils, but there are also disembodied devils. Sometimes Christ is accused of having a devil, and the word is demon, whereby it implies that he was possessed by an evil spirit being. But just as often, or perhaps even more often, as he said in John chapter 6 that one of his own disciples was a devil, the word diabolus refers to an actual person. So now we should probably discuss devils and demons and devils and satyrs. And it should become clear that um, Nephilim devils are all the same thing, right? It's just uh, different words used in different timelines now. Well, well, absolutely. In different timelines, in different contexts. In Greek, there are two words translated as devil in the King James Version of, of each testament old and new, and I should add that to my notes, not distinguishing between these two words is also a cause for great confusion. One word we have already discussed, which is diabolos, and it is properly an accuser, but the other is something quite different, as it is a spirit being, which is a dahimon. In Greek, that's how I would pronounce that, dahimon. Um, some scholars might pronounce it daemon. That's the word that we get demon from. And more frequently in the New Testament, we see a form of the word which is dahimonian. The word dahimon only appears in Scripture in that form, in the plural, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 31, of the demons which were permitted to enter into the swine causing them all to run down the embankment and drown in the sea. To the pagan Greeks, the word dahimonian referred to the divine power or divinity, but also to an inferior divine being. It was also used of a god or goddess, but according to Liddell and Scott, it was more frequently used of the divine power opposed to theos, Theos denoted a god 
in person. But this is the pagan perspective, as the Greeks worshipped false gods. And in scripture, these demons are actually evil entities rather than beneficent spirits. The word dahimon was also used, however, to refer to to refer generally to spiritual or semi-divine beings inferior to the gods or to the genius or departed spirits of men where departed spirits were perceived to become demons by the pagan Greeks, not necessarily from a scriptural viewpoint. Bill, is that where we get the word genie from that would come out a lamp as exactly. a spirit? Yes, that is where we get the word genie from. But we get that through the Romans, that the genius of a man was seen as a spirit driving the man. It, it had that connotation in Latin. I don't remember the exact definition, but it's um, it's definitely the word from which we get genie in English. The genius was the inborn nature of a man, but it was also a tutelary deity of a person or place. So, so the tutelary deity of a person would be his spirit, I believe, which is how demon was also used in certain contexts by the Greeks. But generally, demon referred to a disembodied spirit, not to the embodied spirit. So in the New Testament, wherever we see the word devil, we should check to see whether the devil being described is Diabolus, a person who is acting as a false accuser or as a devil, or if it's Dahimonian, which is a demon or evil spirit. In John chapter 8, Christ told his adversaries that they were of their father, the Diabolus, and that is the sort of devil which was Cain. And that leads me to discuss from the Old Testament devils and satyrs, unless you think there's something more that should be said about Diaboloi and and Dahimones or demons, <laughs> devils and demons. <laughs> no, it's it's just pretty simple, right? That um, when a devil dies, the the spirit remains the demon until the great day when they're all destroyed once and for all. Well, well, right, and and we should um when we when we understand when we want to understand the New Testament because both these words were always translated devil, it it's it's the source of much confusion reading the scriptures. And they shouldn't have been both translated devil. Dahimanian and, and Dahimon should have been translated as demon. And the scriptures would be clearer and more precise when we read them. Devils and satyrs in the Old Testament. And, and this is basically the Old Testament equivalent to devils and, and demons or demons and devils, I should say. In the Old Testament, devils are also distinguished in a similar manner, where the children of Israel 
were, dis were described as sacrificing to devils. And, and my keyboard, keyboard isn't working very well, I'm sorry. Where the children of Israel were described as sacrificing to devils in Deuteronomy chapter 32. We read, they sacrificed unto devils and not to God. To gods, small g gods, whom they knew not. To new gods that newly came up, whom your fathers feared not. Because evidently the fathers didn't know about them. Gods were being invented, I guess. That word for devils in that passage is shed. In the plural form, sheddim. It's Strong's number 7700. And the text implies that they were thought to be gods, where it speaks of them and says, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that newly came up. These devils are mentioned again in the 106th Psalm, where we read, yeah, they sacrificed their sons and daughters unto devils. That word is shedim. And shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. So we see that the shedim devils were spirits, and they were also idols. They were evidently spirits that were able to be apparitions and and worshiped by men in in um there's a common use of that word shed because shed refers to a spirit a shed is a departed spirit and it's used in that context as well and that's the word from which we get a medieval use of shade in, in um, well, even in classical English literature, words that refer to, to spirits or demons in the Greek classics were translated as shade, S-H-A-D-E, in English. And that word shade probably comes directly from that Hebrew word shed. A shade is a shadow of something right? And that's how we get the word shadow. So, it, so, so Bill, um, sorry, do you mean to, to shed like when a snake um, sheds its skin in that context, a Nephilim or a devil, when it dies, it sheds its body, but the evil spirit remains? Is that what you meant? Sorry. Yeah, you know, I haven't, uh, that's a good correlation. I really haven't looked at the verb shed in that aspect. But I'm sure that it probably may have come from that same concept. When you shed something, you shed a, an image of it, right? And, and you're basically the same person. But if you shed your skin, you have the same. I, I never checked the word shed as a verb as we use it to see if it had that same etymology. But it would make sense. I would have to double check that. But these shed, the, the shed, the sheddim in the Old Testament are also simply the souls of the dead, the spirits of the dead. And in English, that became a, a shade. It was translated as shade in 
older um, classical English writing in the translations of the poets and things like that. So we see that term shade, use of spirits, in the traditional English translations of the Iliad and the Odyssey and, and other early Greek works. So a shed is also, in these contexts, translated as devil. And that brings me to another connection, which I don't have in, in my notes, but in his epistle to the Colossians in chapter 2, Paul makes an obscure reference to the voluntary humility, as it is in the King James Version, to the voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. Where are angels worshiped in Scripture? Not anywhere under the term angels. But when we understand these Nephilim and their nature, and we see that at least many of them had become wicked spirits or evil demons when they departed from this world, and that the children of Israel in ancient times worshipped those spirits, those Shedim spirits of these fallen angels, that is how Paul of Tarsus makes sense speaking about the humility and worshipping of angels in Colossians chapter 2. So all of these concepts interlock, and, and when you understand the concepts properly, that then you'll understand the entire scripture. And, and there will be no conflict in your thinking if you can accept the interpretations, because a fallen angel, a Nephilim, or, or a satyr, is not going to accept these interpretations because you can't reveal the devil for what it is. The devil's going to protest. That's just the way it is. That's why our Bibles are so obscure and obfuscated, and that's why these words, all, all their translations are confused, because medieval Christians learned Christianity from the Jews that don't want us to know the truth. In Leviticus chapter 17, now that we have shed out of the way, right? In Leviticus chapter 17, we read, And they shall no more offer their sacrifices unto devils, after whom they have gone a-whoring. So these devils we could have sex with, right? The word for devils here is sahir or seder. It's Strong's number 8163, a word which also referred to a he-goat. And there are reasons for that. And later, where it speaks of the idolatry of Jeroboam I, King Jeroboam I, in, I think that's in Second Chronicles chapter 11, we read, and he ordained him priests, high priests for the high places, and for the devils, and for the calves, the golden calves, which he had made. And the word for devil there is also Seder. This so it's word, Edomite, really, or, or Canaanite. Well, well, that's the way I interpret it, yes. This word, Seder, is Strong's number 8163. It's primarily an adjective meaning rough or hairy. Used as a noun, as a substantive, 
it referred to a he-goat and also to a satyr or demon, according to the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon. Strong says that this word is from number 8175 in his lexicon, and 8175 is a verb, but the word is spelled the exact same way with the same Hebrew characters and just has different vowel points, right? The verb is satar, and Strong defined that verb rather insufficiently, in my opinion, as to sweep or whirl away. The definition found in the Brown-Driver-Briggs lexicon is more complete. First, they say that it is to bristle, as with horror, or to shudder, or of a storm, to sweep or whirl away. But they also define it to mean, of a storm, to be exceedingly tempestuous, or of a man, to storm against someone, all uses of the same verb. Satar. Now, on page 792 of Jesenius's original Hebrew lexicon, he adds to be fierce as a tempest. In the same light as that last definition of Brown Driver Briggs, but Satar could mean to be fierce as a tempest. So the verb certainly carries with it the connotation of being rough, fierce, tempestuous. All these things are rough to bristle. That's something rough. So the verb carries the connotation of being rough. And a related adjective, Strong's number 8165, is defined generally as rough, even in Strong's concordance. Now, it, so we see that this word is related to storms. It's related to the concept of being fierce, tempestuous, rough. It's not a coincidence that the Romans named their storm god Saturn, where we see the, another form of the same word. Saturn is just another form of Seder, which is another form of this Hebrew word Satir, which means rough. To the ancient Greeks, satyrs were rough, hairy creatures depicted early on as being part ape and part man, but later as being part goat and part man. They lived on the outskirts or outside the borders of the general society, and they were described as being sexually insatiable and always engaging in decadence and in bribery, while forever attempting to seduce women with those same activities. Satyrs, to the Greeks, they were the original party animal. They, they sound like the, um, you know, the powerful Jews with their pedo rings and, and all that, right? Well, it's the same thing, except now in the, the Jews, the Edomites, instead of being at the edges of society, now they're ruling the society. It's the same thing all over again. There's no doubt their nature has never changed. The actual nature of Arabs and Jews, their descendants from the ancient Canaanites, has never 
changed. And what do we have in Britain with all of these Arab Muslim grooming gangs raping tens of thousands of white children, male and female, every year? That's what they're doing. That they're just treating the the white British race at, as a field that they could harvest for sex. That's all they're doing. They're destroying our race by interbreeding with it. It's the same sin of Genesis chapter 6 all over again. It's the same exact sin, and it's being perpetrated by the same exact players against the same exact Adamic race. It's the same sin. What's going on right now in Christian society in Europe and in America, but from a different perspective, what with a different agenda, it, it's the same sin of Genesis chapter 6 all over again. The connection between the Hebrew satyr and the Greek satyr is certain enough that the word was translated as satyr in the King James Version at Isaiah chapter 13 verse 21, where it is prophesying concerning ancient Babylon. And we read, but wild beasts of the desert shall lie there. And their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall dwell there, and satyrs shall dance there. And the wild beasts of the island shall cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant palaces. And her time is near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. And likewise, we read in Isaiah chapter 34, in a prophecy against Edomia, the land of Edom, and thorns shall come up in her places, nettles and brambles in the fortresses thereof, and it shall be a habitation of dragons and a court for owls. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island, and the satyr shall cry to his fellow. The screech owl also shall rest there, and find for herself a place of rest. And I would assert that none of these beasts are literal beasts. The word for screech owl is Lilith in Hebrew. Lilith was the name of a female Babylonian demon. And therefore, these creatures are not literal animals. The cult of Lilith must have been known to the ancient prophets as the Assyrian idol, Tammuz, is mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 8, being worshipped by Israelite women. And Tammuz is related to the cult of Lilith in Assyrian legends. Actually, Tammuz was the escort of Ishtar, another Assyrian deity or demon. Other non-Adamic races are never precisely described in Scripture, and instead pejoratives are used to describe them, like those roving creatures of Genesis chapter 14, right? That the um, zuzim, and, and that word zuzim means roving creatures. That's not a technical name for another race of people. That is a pejorative describing another race of people. And there are several examples of words for beast which appear where the scriptures are actually referring to men. And here we have wild beasts, satyrs, owls, 
and dragons. And all of these may also refer to people characterized as doing things which people may be do that may be expected to do. The words of Christ in Luke chapter 10 also make the connection from fallen angels to men described as serpents and scorpions. He sent 70 disciples out to preach the gospel in Luke chapter 10, and the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Right there, we're told the source of those devils. Right there. That's the origination of those devils. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions. He's not talking about snakes and bugs. He's talking about men. I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. So, the demons and the men who are really serpents and scorpions, and that's pejorative terms, because they're not Adamic men, that they're men from the enemy, the adversary, the power of the enemy. These things are all connected to the fall of Satan as lightning from heaven, which is the fall of the angels in Revelation chapter 12. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So we have in the Old Testament devils, demons, and satyrs. And these are all different entities as devils and satyrs are physical beings. And sometimes devils are satyrs, while demons are spiritual beings. To think that all devils are ghosts or evil spirits is to dismiss the fact that many of the actual people in this world are also devils and should be treated likewise. But in the New Testament, we also have devils and demons, and Christians should treat embodied devils just as they would treat evil spirits. We're to pay them no respect. We're to pay them no mind. We're not to interact with them. And, and that's why um, Jews do everything they can to make this multicultural society, right? And um, as we said many times, play on our empathy to, to get us to uh, look at these devils the same as we look at our own race, right? Works all the time. They, they manage to do it all the time. And we fall for it every time. Fraternity, liberty, and equality. That's what we're brainwashed to believe. And it's the same Jew who brainwashed us to believe that from the dawn of the French Revolution. And we've all accepted it. And that was the start of Marxism and communism as well. In fact, <laughs> the government set up by the French Revolution was called the Paris Commune. <laughs> it was absolutely communist. There is um that there are a couple of I'm, I don't know if you have anything more to say about Satan devils demons satyrs shed ghosts <laughs> spirits 
what well, well, today we would just call them Jews, nigs, chinks, <laughs> right. essentially, right? If we if these words were distinguished in Scripture, the Scripture would be more precise, and and we would have a better understanding of the things which the Scripture is referring to. That's the first hurdle, is to have a better translation. And, and then the second hurdle is to understand the way these words are used in context throughout the Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. Then we could put the pieces together and understand the Bible. And, and actually believe what it says, right? That That's a hurdle for a lot of our people, unfortunately. Exactly. And, and, and then we can believe what it says. It, if we don't believe what it says, we're never going to understand it. If we believe what it says and, and interpret the words correctly and put the pieces together, we certainly can understand every word of it. And it all comes together from the, the, the worshiping of devils in, in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy or Numbers to, to Paul's statement concerning the worshiping of angels. They're talking about the same thing when the ancient Greeks were practicing their paganism and, and they were worshiping Apollo and Athena and, and Neptune and, and all of these <clears throat> imagined gods and goddesses, they were basically worshiping the same fallen angels that their Israelite ancestors had worshiped in the desert, in the wilderness of Sinai. Yeah, that just made them uh, more appealing, essentially, you know, to to um, appeal to like the Greeks as these heroes that, that fought in battles and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, well right. Even the satyrs in, in Greek art, they, they went from being absolutely hideous to, to looking like cute, cuddly little stuffed animals. It... <laughs> That they were popularized and, and humanized over the course of Greek literature and Greek art. And, and that's very clear. That at first the satyrs were, were absolutely hideous and no man would want to touch one. But then they kind of became younger and cuter and less ugly. And wow, they were sexualized. Yeah, right. right. It's evident, right, in Greek art. We're going to end this... Um, We've been talking about these misunderstood and mistranslated words in Scripture for five weeks now, and, and we have one more, and, and that's um, words translated salvation and preservation. And I'm not going to get into the actual Greek words here because they're the same. The word soter or savior or soteria or salvation is used in many different contexts, and it's the same word. But in order to understand it, we have to understand the contexts in which it's used. I don't know if you want to say anything about that before we begin. Yeah, yeah it just helps people understand that, that sometimes Christ or, or even just, you know, the Old Testament was talking about being saved in this life, you know, such as obeying the law, but but the eternal salvation was always promised to the Adamic race. And if you understand that, that then the whole uh, dialogue that the churches teach of good people or bad people or people attend to the church is all nonsense. And, and um, 
you know, again, it just clarifies that we're the Israelites, essentially. Well, well right. The, what the church teaches, absolute nonsense, and, and especially the Roman Catholic Church, which added this concept of purgatory to the paradigm, what, which is absolutely not found anywhere in Scripture. It's ridiculous. But here we have, um, <clears throat> this was an afterthought to this presentation, and I threw these notes together in, in a short time this morning, but I, I do think that they will make our point that there is temporal salvation. Temporal meaning salvation in this world, preservation in this world, and then there is the eternal spirit of God within man, and they are two different aspects of life and creation which are confounded in Scripture. The following two passages I'm going to cite are examples of temporal salvation, salvation in this world. First in Mark chapter 13, in, in verse 19, and Christ is talking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which also seems to be a type for the final judgment of men at the end of days, right? For in those days shall be affliction, such as was not from the beginning of the creation, which God created unto this time, neither shall be. And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he has chosen, he has shortened the days. Now, in this context, by saying flesh, he's talking about the children of God who are in the flesh. And he's talking about the salvation of the flesh, not of the spirit. That's a reference to temporal or worldly preservation in the face of his greater description of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. So there we have temporal salvation, not eternal salvation of the spirit. That's something different. And there's another example, which is gross, grossly misunderstood by denominational Christians. And this is in Acts chapter 16. And I'm going to read seven verses, starting with verse 28. And the setting for this is Paul and Silas in a prison. And there's a great earthquake. And the warden of the prison, imagining that he lost the prisoners, was about to kill himself. And that, sound, that sounds a little extreme. But in ancient Rome, when you were a soldier in custody of prisoners, the penalty for losing those prisoners, for allowing them to escape, was death. So this warden would rather kill himself than face the disgrace of suffering that penalty at the hands of, of, of the Romans themselves, right, of his own people. So against that backdrop, in verse 28 we read, But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm for we are all here. So in spite of the fact that the gates of the prison of the cells were opened in the earthquake, Paul understood by the providence of God that none of the prisoners sought to take advantage and escape. They all stayed. 
So the warden of the jail had no reason to kill himself, and Paul is reassuring him. That would be a sign to this warden that God was with Paul. It really would, because the warden was facing certain death one way or another, <clears throat> thinking even in spite of the earthquake, the, the Roman authorities wouldn't care. The penalty for losing those prisoners is a harsh one. So we read in reference to the warden, then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, now this man knew nothing of Christianity. He knew nothing of the gospel of Christ. He's just the warden of the jail where the citizens had Paul and Silas locked up. And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And they spoke unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. So Paul and Silas are using the, this um, humility of this warden who realized that, that his life was being saved because the prisoners didn't escape, and sees Paul as some kind of godly man or messenger of God from his own pagan viewpoint because Paul had indicated to him, don't kill yourself. So Paul must have known somehow that the warden was about to kill himself, for we are all here. So Paul's the spokesman for an outcome that could not have been expected, that none of these prisoners escaped. So this man must have immediately realized that Paul was something special and said to him, what must I do to be preserved? And this would have been contrary to the answer he may have expected because he just wanted to hold on to his prisoners and, and keep him himself from being executed if he lost his prisoners. That's all he wanted to do. And Paul disregarded that worldly concern that this jail warden must have had and said, Instead, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. So they preached the gospel to him and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, because they were beaten, and was baptized. He and all his, meaning all his house, straight away, meaning immediately, that night. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced believing in God with all his house. How would Paul have known that his whole family, that this jail warden, he never met him before. He didn't know his family. He didn't know anyone in this man's house. How would he know that they could all be saved? How would Paul know that? That they all had this eternal spirit, that they were all good people, that they were not sinners, that they hadn't done anything terrible. How could Paul know that? That they could have eternal life? How could he know that they could have eternal life? Paul wasn't God to grant eternal life. Paul didn't even know that he himself was guaranteed eternal life. And he expressed that in some of his epistles. So if Paul didn't know about himself, how could he know about them? Paul's not talking about eternal life here.
Paul is talking about temporal salvation, salvation, preservation in this world. And soteria means salvation or preservation, safety, a keeping safe. A faithful Christian obeys the commandments of the law, and in keeping the law, he may expect to be preserved in this life. That is the meaning of the promise of the law in Leviticus chapter 18, in verse 5. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgment, which if a man do, he shall live in them. Now, that really means if a man does, he shall have life in them or by them. I am Yahweh. That is also the meaning of the admonitions of Christ in John chapter 15. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. A man keeping the law in those days, maybe not today, but in those days, the members of his house would also have to keep the law as the man is the head of his house. So only in that manner did Paul understand that if the jailer turned to Christ, then he and his whole house would be saved or preserved. As Paul anticipated trials and destruction to come upon the empire, which is spelled out in the prophets. Paul must have been familiar with the prophecies of Daniel, which make that clear. And the early Christian writers in the centuries after Paul had certainly understood and wrote about that same thing. It's in Irenaeus, it's in Tertullian, it's in Origen, it's in all their writings. So that is an account of preservation in the flesh, which is promised to those who keep the commandment of Christ, that you will have a full life, that you will be preserved in this life. Of course, all men are inevitably going to die, but we seek a full life. And to do that, one way of doing that is keeping the commandments of Christ. Another way of doing that is to be simply wicked and to be a Jew bastard and they live forever. <laughs> they live for until they're a hundred and, and sin until they're a hundred. And, and the Psalms spoke about that too. Why did a wicked prosper? Why did a wicked live in long lives? So that account, Acts chapter 16, has nothing to do with eternal life. It only has to do with temporal life. And that's the only way Paul could have meant it if he's telling this jailer that if he keeps the commandments, then his whole house will be saved. Because understanding the way society worked at a time, when the head of the house kept the law, the whole house had to keep that law. Because men were men, and, and they weren't turned into women by the courts. And, and, and the whole Jewish Babylonian system we live under today. We live under today. In contrast, there are passages which are related to preservation of the spirit. But preservation of the spirit is not based on behavior. And, and we shall certainly see that in, I, I mean, there are other 
There are other passages which exhibit that, but I think the best two are both found in 1 Corinthians, in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. Behold, I show you a mystery. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In other words, we won't all die, but we're all going to be transformed in this resurrected body. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. And to this we must compare Psalm 90, verse 3, which we cited last week, Thou turnest man, Enosh, to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men, Adam. In other words, all men on the planet are going to die at some point or another, except those fortunate Israelites who were left standing at the last trumpet. But only the children of Adam, only the children, the men descended from the Adamic man, are going to be resurrected, are going to return from death. That is the scripture. And, and we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and Paul's thinking forward. He's speaking to Christians in a Christian context going forward. He's not speaking of the past. That's a different context. Even though Christ had went, it's described in Peter's first epistle in chapters 3 and 4, that Christ, while he was in the tomb, had preached the gospel to the spirits of the dead, to the spirits of the dead that sinned in the days of Noah, who were sinners above all other sinners. They were destroyed in the flood. And they had the opportunity to repent and be reconciled with God. Peter described them as the spirits in prison. So if they had the opportunity to repent and be reconciled to God through Christ, then everybody who died before Christ or who died ignorant of Christ has that same opportunity. That's the example which Peter had been making. Paul speaking of going forward in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and he says, For another foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, now gold and silver and precious stones are going to survive the fire, the fiery trials of this life. Wood, hay, and stubble are not. They're going to burn up, right? Every man's work shall be manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And if any man's work abides, which he has built thereupon, gold, silver, or precious stones, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, because all he laid on the foundation of Christ was wood, hay, or stubble. In other words, he had no worthy good works. He shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So, we go through the fiery trials of this life. We don't do anything worth keeping, and we are still 
preserved, even though we had to go through these fiery trials. So it might be harder on us because we're not keeping the commandments of Christ. We're not loving our brethren, but we ourselves will still be saved, even though we have no good, worthy works worth preserving in the end. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is speaking of a fornicator, and he wants the assembly to put the fornicator out of the assembly for his wicked deeds. So Paul, speaking of a fornicator, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's really exhorting them to do this, to deliver such a one unto Satan. He's telling them in another passage or two to put him out of the assembly. And that is the delivery of such a man unto the adversary. To deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, in the end day, even though that man lived a wicked life, he had bad behavior, he was a fornicator, he's still going to be saved in the end. Just like the man that has no good works is still going to be saved in the end. If all sheep nations go into the kingdom of God, and all goat nations or satyr nations are destined for the same lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels, we must realize that salvation is preservation in this life, and the spirit is eternal. If you have that spirit, it's already saved in the day of Christ. The Adamic man is subjected to vanity so that he may learn by it. This we read first in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where Solomon notes that I have seen the travail which God has given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. But in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, we read Solomon's conclusion. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. This vanity and the deliverance of man from vanity is precisely what Paul of Tarsus had described in Romans chapter 8. Indeed, in earnest anticipation, the creation, now we will explain that momentarily, the creation awaits the revelation of the sons of Yahweh. To transientness or vanity, the creation was subjected not willingly, but on account of he who subjected it in expectation, that also the creation itself shall be liberated from the bondage of decay. That's the liberation from the vanity of which Solomon had spoken. Into the freedom of the honor of the children of God, or Yahweh. To understand that, we must examine the context of the rest of that chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 8, to find it by saying creation. Paul referred to the Adamic creation 
as opposed to other things which Yahweh had created. And that's how he explains that at the end of that chapter. In the end, all is vanity, except that there is indeed a God who shall judge the works of men. That was the lesson of Solomon, and that was the lesson of Paul, for which reason he also gives the same exhortation to keep the commandments of God. Every Adamic spirit shall survive that vanity, every single one. Otherwise, what's the point of the lesson? There is no point. Now, each of these passages by themselves can be interpreted differently. But alternate, alternative interpretations will always create conflicts with Scripture and within Scripture. Once it is realized, as Solomon said in Wisdom chapter 2, that the Adamic man was created to be immortal and that only one race is of Adam, the Adamic race is only one race on the face of this earth, then we realize that salvation is a racial phenomenon, as Paul had also explained in Romans chapter 5 in a different manner. And then we may properly sort out who are the sheep, who are the goats, why sheep and goats are nations and not mere believers or unbelievers, because the fornicator was not a believer. If he was a believer, he would have kept the commandments and he wouldn't have been a fornicator. The man who built nothing on the foundation of Christ was not a believer because he had no good works in the end. If he believed Christ, he would have sought to do good works as Christ exhorts us to do good works. Yet these men are saved. So salvation does not depend on behavior. Reward is by what you do in this life. Your reward but your salvation comes out of the fact that you are an Adamic spirit if you are a child of Adam, if you are one of the sheep. If you're a goat, you're going to the lake of fire destined for the devil and his angels. That is because we are children of God. We need to be preserved in this life against the children of the devil and the false accusers. But we should not worry about preservation in the next life, since we could do nothing to save ourselves. We keep the law, not because we want to be saved, but because we love our God and our brethren. That's the primary reason to keeping the law. And keeping the law should lead to temporal preservation. But we already have our eternal life as a matter of the fact of our creation. When all these words are translated properly, the truth becomes clear. And once again, only by translating and understanding the words properly can we put together the pieces of the puzzle. And that's all I have to say. Yeah, ho hopefully that all makes sense. It's um, a hard pill to swallow, but... Um... That, that shows you that 
the Adamic race is white and that there's these other evil races. And hopefully, if people understand this, they'll understand the Bible a lot better overall, right? That's the real story of the Bible. That's the true story of the scriptures. This is the book of Adam. It's not for anybody else but that Adamic race, and, and they can all be traced to the white Europeans and, and Eurasians and, and people in the northern coast of Africa, which was the original white settlement, the oikumene of the Adamic race. And we were never intended, although Yahweh God knew we were going to do it, don't get me wrong, but that's his permissive will because that's the vanity to which we are subject and that's the way in which the devil has deceived the whole world. But we were never intended in the divine will of God, according to his law, to take these beasts out of the jungle, dress them up, teach them English or, or German or French, and call them people. That's just insane. But that's what we've done. Right. And, and this is um, the major word translations. Uh, next time it'll be interesting going through a lot of the verses because there's still a lot more mistranslations, right? Well, well, right. There are a lot of peculiar individual mistranslations in the Bible that lead it away from um, Christian identity truth towards universalism and and a lot of them are subtle but they're nevertheless mistranslations that once the verses are translated properly it's unmistakable that this new testament gospel is only for one particular people and 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 that it's fully corroborated in the prophets christ came to fulfill the prophets he didn't come to destroy them. And, and there's no word in the prophets which fails. And throughout the prophets, salvation, redemption, um, reconciliation with God are only for the genetic children of Israel. Well, that message is clear in the New Testament also. Once, once again, certain terms and certain passages are properly translated. And that's where we will go in our next presentation. Thank you. Yep, look forward to that one as well. Thanks, Bill. Um, praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of our European race. Thank you. Praise Yahweh.